1: Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm
0: Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. (laughs) Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, You can, and here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie Members Club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right, so now you're thinking, $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer, actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as... interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions.
1: And perhaps most impressively short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah that'll be me,
0: Mark, Howard Nock and Jason Reed Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just five dollars a month. So if you can't resist simply go to patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things or one word and join up. There's also a website bowie at cheapthings.com. book early t is for trevor boulder oh yes trevor boulder born 9th of june 1950 died 21st of may 2013 an english rock musician songwriter and record producer best known for his long association with the uriah heap and his tenure of course with the spiders from mars bowie's backing band although he also played alongside a variety of other musicians from the early 70s now he was born in kingston upon hull East Riding of Yorkshire. His father was a trumpet player, which does explain his trumpet
1: playing in the future. Mm. Uh, And other members of his family were also musicians. As we found out earlier in the series, his granny taught Mick Ronson how to play piano. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was only when they were recording Ziggy Stardust that um, that I think Mick Ronson probably put two and two together and went, hey, does your gran, does she teach piano like... (laughs) Ah, she does, yeah. Oh, right, well, she taught me, did she? Yeah, that's just a bit of archive. Oh, that was incredible. I don't know where you found that. Yeah, Uh, he played Cornet in a school band and was active in his local R&B scene in the mid-60s. Inspired by the Beatles, in 1964,
0: he formed his first band with his brother and took up the bass guitar. He first came to prominence in The Rats which also featured fellow Hull musician Mick Ronson on lead guitar In 1971 he was called in to replace Tony Visconti in Bowie's backing band which would soon be known as The Spiders from Mars He subsequently appeared in D.A. Pennebacher's 1973 doc and concert movie Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars Yeah I mean I don't know if this gets mentioned a little bit
1: later on I don't think it does but uh, it was either Woody or Trevor they looked at each other when Bowie made the announcement at the end Mm. and said uh, Are they just fucking sacked <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was what he said, Trevor said it, but it could be the other way round. Right, okay. But anyway, uh, his name checked as Weird, Bowie's stage name for Boulder. Not a great nickname, you'd have to say. Not really. Uh, in the song Ziggy Stardust, in the lyrics, Ziggy play guitar, jamming good with Weird and Gilly and the spiders from Mars. Trevor never looked comfortable as a glam rock mannequin, tottering behind Ziggy Stardust in platform boots and rainbow-hued outfits of latex and glitter, and just um, at this point, mm. it does mention like his uh, his, his mutton chops. You yes, know? and they were they're were incredible, and I think there was uh, Angie who sprayed them silver, mm. but am I right in thinking that it was a beard To be- I think it was a beard to begin with oh was it and then it was just slightly um... and then cut down the middle just to get rid of the, the you know the long haired hairy yeah, kind yeah, of rock right. and thing. I think that's what happened I mean if anybody knows that I'm wow. wrong there then it wouldn't at all surprise me but that's what I seem to remember that he just had a really long beard and then to make him look weird yes <laughs> as his nickname would suggest yes. they just cut out around his chin and, and mm. made him into long really really long diggers yeah. if you think about him, <laughs> remarkable
0: it- well that's a good story I didn't know that story I mean, it might not be Right, but I think it is. His bass and occasional trumpet work appeared on the studio albums Hunky Dory, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane and Pin Ups, The Spider's swan song with their leader. He went on to play on Mick Ronson's 1974 album Slaughter on 10th Avenue, which got to the uh, top 10 in Britain. And in 1976, he joined Uriah Heep, replacing John Wetton so I did go and see Uriah Heep and I don't like them at all
1: no. and I went to see him just because Trevor Boulder yeah. was in them and, uh, and I watched Trevor playing. just watched him for around about 20 minutes and then left because I really didn't like it and I, it, I mean one of my favourite bands in the world ever is uh, the OCs and John mm. Dwyer the leader of OCs he's mad on Uriah Heep yeah, he is, and he? uh, and so I bought that do you know the funny first album that they, they put out so it looks like a hammer horror kind of one of, one of those pan books that used to be at a buy oh, okay. in the 70s yeah. so it, you will know the cover yeah. I'm sure it's, it's just a, a close top of a face and it's got cobwebs all over it. Oh, okay, right. I think another one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, musically, it's not far removed from you would say perhaps Deep Purple. Okay. And the lyrics are atrocious. <laughs> and that, that's and that's kind of my um, and, that, and I think that's probably their best album. Is that? To, right? I think I think possibly.
0: Um, <laughs> that just got to be a sticker on the reissue. Lyrics Ooh. are atrocious, and this is the best album. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry. But, I mean, but yeah, yeah. The, the oh, words are just quite ridiculous. We're going it's off, a bit
1: Spinal Tap. Right? All
0: right, of course. Well, we're going off piece here. What kind of lyrics? What's what were they about? Oh, I,
1: I, yeah. I listen to it, Bob. Do yourself, <laughs> I don't want to. Do yourself a favour. Okay, so uh, Trevor Boulder worked on the albums Firefly, Innocent Victim, Fallen Angel, and Conquest. When the lineup that recorded the latter disbanded, Trevor alone was left with Mick Box, guitarist, founder member, and legal owner of the band's name mm. there in a Tale. Mm. The attempt to put a new lineup together temporarily stalled, and Boulder, needing to earn a living, accepted an offer to join Wishbone
0: Ash in 1981. Trevor had coincidentally Again, swap places with John Wetton, becoming Wishbone Ash's bass player for their 1982 album, Twin Barrels Burning. It was another short-lived connection, as by 1983, he'd returned to the rhythm section with Uriah Heep, playing on the Head First tour, although Bob Daisley played on the album, of course, everybody knows that. Yep. And all albums since, as well as his usual bass playing and backing vocal duties, Boulder also produced Heep's 1991 album, Different World. In 2012 and early 2013, Boulder worked with Steve
1: Z Suicide, right. Steve Roberts of the UK band UK Subs, uh, as producer on singles Wild Trash, co writer with Z Suicide. That's, um, just to get this right, Z E Suicide. Yeah, yeah. Lady Rocker and a cover of Ziggy Stardust. Boulder also played on these tracks. Boulder died in May 2013 at Castle Hill Hospital in Cottingham from cancer. He'd undergone surgery for pancreatic cancer earlier that year. Uh, it's just a, a real tragedy, and you know, yeah, obviously, uh, we know that um, uh, Holy Holy are out on the road, and it's and it's the, they do the Man of solar world magnificently, mm. and they do Ziggy brilliantly, yeah. And it is Woody, Tony Visconti, and of course uh, the uh, the pairing of the guys getting back together again from the Man of solar world. It all makes sense, but there was talk earlier on of um, them actually doing a similar kind of thing, but with Trevor Boulder, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Trevor passed away, and oh. so it never came to pass. Anyway, no, this is a look at oh, Trevor's okay. work with and with out bowie and it's from the let it rock website okay and it's an interview uh with trevor so the question
0: is asked trevor what initially inspired you to become a musician my father he answered he was a musician he was a trumpet player all my family are musicians two brothers all my father's brothers my grandmother was a musician too one of my aunts was a dance teacher my other auntie was an opera singer so you had to be a musician in our family if you weren't one then you were a failure uh, next question, how many instruments do you actually play? Any guitar, trumpet, bass, trombones. I can play any brass instrument, a little bit
1: of piano. I get around to piano a bit to write songs on it. Anything I put my hand on, I will play it. That What oh, a talent. Obviously, yeah. just a naturally talented guy. Uh, and, um, and then the uh,
0: question was, how often do you get to play trumpet? I know you played on one. And then he he says, yeah, on the hunky-dory, yes, but I don't play anymore. I haven't played for years. I stopped playing years ago. My father died three years ago, and he left me his trumpet. So I keep thinking, I'm going to start playing again to see if I can still play. Then the question came, coming from such a musical family and becoming a rocker, wasn't that strange? How did your relatives react? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah. He said, I played in what they call brass bands for many years since I've been seven years old, and I got to the point when I was 14 where I was very good. I was one of the best in the city that I lived in. I was like a solo cornet player with a school band, and that was when I wanted to join the army. I was going to join the Royal Marines and play in a Royal Marines band after school, but my mother wouldn't let me go. She didn't want me to join the Marines at all. And then the Beatles came along, and as long as they came along, I wanted to play with a band, and my brother as well. At 14, we bought two guitars and we needed a
1: bass player, but he didn't want to play bass so it's down to me to learn and play it so i bought myself a bass but it was great we used to rehearse in our house. Full band with all the equipment. Our parents never complain. They bought us a van so we could get from gig to gig and PA. They encouraged us. That's lovely. That's great, isn't it? The parents buying you a van. Yeah, well. a yeah, class act. And so the
0: question again now, uh, what did people in Hull think about all this? There wasn't a huge scene like in London. Oh, it was great, said Trevor, because we were so different. The band I played with was a blues one. I never played in a pop band ever. We were playing stuff like the Stones were doing, a bluesish type of thing. People in Hull loved it. We were playing live like five nights a week and in the end we were playing all over Yorkshire. Of course when all of a sudden the blues thing took off about 1967 with Cream and Fleetwood Mac and the Blues Breakers, it was really great playing around because we were already doing that stuff. They started playing all these songs that we've been playing live for years before. We've always played blues we were pretty heavy when we played it. And then he's asked, how did your bass playing style evolve? Was it from Paul McCartney? Not really from McCartney. Through the blues mainly, through listening to blues players. I started
1: out listening to a lot of old blues players from the 30s and 40s, listening to a lot of Sonny Boy Williamson, a lot of early blues stuff, copying it. Uh, We didn't have a lot of blues albums in England when I was 14 uh, to learn to play to, but we liked it so much that it's all we ever wanted to play. In Hull, we would just go out on Saturday with what money we had and we used to buy every blues album we could find.
0: We found all these great songs, songs by all these people Then along came a chap called Jack Bruce. I saw him play with Graham Bond and Ginger Baker in Hull before they formed Cream, and then I saw him play with Cream, and that was just unbelievable. I wanted to play like Jack Bruce, and I practised to all his records continuously. It was unique. There was nothing like it before him. Before that, the bass players were just standing back, playing along with the drums and leaving it for the guitar players and singers. But when he came along, he turned the bass up. For me, it was stunning to watch him play, and he was a great singer as well. It was brilliant the way he sang, much more than Clapton. I mean, I don't think Ginger Baker wasn't keen on the fact he turned his bass up but I mean everybody else was yeah and uh, also uh, Trevor Boulder did go out and get an SG bass which is what Jack yeah, Bruce used yeah. so I think
1: you could even see the influence uh, he continued I mean Eric Clapton was no one at the time with John Mayle and the Yardbirds and to me the whole crux of the band cream was Jack Bruce and there was also John McVee from Fleetwood Mac who was with John Mayall at the time and a lot of his stuff I liked and I copied a lot of his style a little bit McCartney and John Entwistle But mainly Jack Bruce, he was a big influence for the feel, he had a great feel, amazing. And then the question is, did you at the time think
0: you would be a musician for all your life? I never thought, what if I'd be a musician for all my life? I was too young and enjoying this, I really wanted to be a professional. I always knew I wanted to be in a band and do it all professionally, fair enough. And then he's asked, what was your first band? Was it the one with Mick Ronson? Uh, yes, first professional with Mick Ronson, a band called Rono, And was that because Rono was the leader? And he says, no, not really. We just called it that. Somebody thought of the name and we took it. How did you meet Mick Ronson? He says, we played in local bands in Hull, in rubble bands. I played with my brothers and though I'd seen him lots of times I never really got to know him until I hooked up with him in Rono. before he was in the Rats and the Rats were playing in a youth club called Jarvis High School and I went along to watch. Their bass player, he continued at the time, was a friend
1: of mine who wouldn't play bass because he was afraid of getting electrocuted so he asked me if I'd step in I said (laughs) okay I'll play it presumably he was wearing wellies at the time he said so I got up and played Ronson had seen me play a couple of fee concerts in parks in Hull and he wanted me in the band and that's how I started with him and then we became really good friends we went everywhere together he was the best man at my wedding then of course he joined Bowie the next question is did you stay
0: with Nick all the way to Bowie's band yeah he says we went down to London and did a radio show with Bowie played on John Peel's show which is now on the live at the BBC which of course Uh, Bowie at the Beeb album of Bowies. We went down just to do that, but finished staying in London doing Hunky Dory two weeks later. Then we did Ziggy and the rest. Well, it's history. He's then asked, but how did you, hailing not from London, arrive at that session? And he answered, Mick Ronson and Woody Woodman's he had played on the Man Who Sold the World
1: album with David Bowie. They did that album with him and then left. They didn't want to play with Bowie anymore, so they came up to Hull, where I joined them, and we played for about six months as a band. And Bowie rang up one day and asked if we could go down and do this John Peel show with him, because he needed a band. So he said, OK, we'll come down and do that. That's basically how it started. He's then asked, How was it working with Bowie?
0: I mean, technically, he's not a great singer. Ooh, and what? 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 Yeah, what? Yeah, oh, I would have walked out at that point. If I was Trev. Uh, So Trevor rightly says, I think he is. He's got his own unique style. I preferred him in the 70s. His vocals in the 70s had an amazing range. He sang really high. It was great. And the control he had over his voice was stunning. You would have liked the sound of his voice, though he's not a rock singer. There's no way he's a rock singer. He's then asked, was David a band member or rather separated from the Spiders from Mars? This is where it gets a little bit gnarly. Um, So it started out
1: as a band, really. He asked us to join him and we said okay because we were on a record deal at the time and we gave that up to be with him. We were promised the same share of everything if we would do this. And it was like Davy Bowie and the Spiders from Mars or Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. We started out playing in clubs in London and as a band, we went to all the gigs together in the car. But the bigger he
0: got and the band would go everywhere he'd go, the less we actually saw him. He continues. We only saw him as he walked on stage. He separated himself from us towards the end he was like a solo artist that didn't need us while in the beginning he definitely needed us I don't think that he'd go up there as fast as he did without the Spiders from Mars because of the playing for one and the feel of the playing and the musicians really helped to make all those albums Uh, He's then asked, where did this spiders thing come from? Was it from Bowie? To which
1: he replies, it came from Bowie. Yeah, that's a Bowie idea. That Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars thing. We just took the spiders from Mars and used it for ourselves. That's how we got our name. And then the question
0: is, uh, what was your input in the band? You didn't write then, did you? No, he said. But we arranged a lot of stuff. We had to arrange the songs and played towards it. Stuff like Gene Genie and a lot of songs that Bowie would bring in, he'd play on an acoustic guitar and then we'd put it together as a band, uh, made them into a band song rather than just somebody sitting with a guitar in the corner of the room and then asked, what memories do you have of the stint with Bowie? Good? Bad? This is where it gets really, really gnarly. Uh, Mixed,
1: a mixture of good memories and really, really bad memories. Really bad memories towards the end, when he changed as a person. It was really great until then, just a regular sort of folk. Uh, He was a nice, caring bloke, but the bigger he got the bigger his head got and the less important you were to him from the stories that I've heard with all the musicians that were there with him he'd tread the line when he didn't need you he'd discard you but while he needed you he was very friendly towards you but as soon as he's used
0: you for what he wanted he then wouldn't go around to your door never to be seen or talked to again yeah it does get gnarly he carries on I saw him do it to a few people as well they used to do shows with him and once he finished using them he didn't want to see them and if they came to gigs he wouldn't let them in they tried to see him play and he'd be like I don't want them here tonight I don't want them- here that's just the way he works then he's asked uh, did you feel like a star during that time it's a bit of a pause there and he says i suppose i did yeah
1: because if you're famous you're on the tv you're playing to a lot of people and people come up and talk to you especially fans you're feeling that but i never felt any different from what i felt all my life I mean, I didn't think particularly I'm a star. It was just me. I was getting all this glory stuff,
0: which is a lot of bullshit, but I still was the same indeed. And here's where it gets really poignant. Uh, He carries on. He says, but the worst point was when it all finished, being out of work, being penniless. In the end, we had no money and I had a family and Bowie didn't really care about that. He didn't give me any money, so he didn't give me a percentage of what I was on. He just let me suffer, which I thought was nasty. So that's a really bad memory. I'll never forget what he did then. So, you know, I mean, and, and he does talk about the uh,
1: the money that he's owed in a short while. Yeah. But the story is, that I know that the spies were told, you're not getting much money uh, on the Ziggy tour. You know, mm-hmm. you, you'll get by and you'll get all of you, as we know, all of the stuff that you would need at uh, the hotel. On yes, yeah. But at the end of the tour, you'll have enough money to buy a house. Mm. That's what they were that was told. A promise, wasn't it? Yeah. And that was a carrot being dangled. And of course, because of the the frivolity with the money and the expenditure, which was just outlandish, we'll talk about it in a bit. Uh, there was no money to give it to him, so uh, it's it just. But he it, it seems like such a sweet. I never ever met Trevor Boulder. He's, he's the only one of the spiders I've never met, and he
0: seems like such a sweet fella, doesn't he? He does. I tried to interview him a few times, but he was so elusive, and right. I don't think he really liked talking about Bowie. Uh, and then I think at one time I think he did say uh, for one of the magazines, I think it was for Uncut magazine, we were trying to get him, and he said, "Yeah, you know, I'll talk, but I want like 150 quid, right?" Which is like, you know, and I, and kind of heart went out to him really, but it just it was just the one that got away. I wish I'd done it, yeah, you know, yeah. But uh, as you say, he just seems like such a genuine, sweet fella. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host. The A to of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes.
1: So the next question is, you used to dye your hair then the way Todd Rundgren
0: started doing a bit later. Do you think you influenced him? (laughs) And he started laughing. Oh, yeah, most likely. Uh, He most likely copied it. Of course he did. A lot of people did. But I started as black, really jet black hair. And then he said, what, you mean like a style revolution? He says, no, the band weren't as wild as Heat were when I
1: joined them. We were quite reserved. The major thing was we went to America on a tour and we were playing to like 100 people a night over three months. We did 15 shows in three months. It was a week in Florida and a week in New York. We did one gig in all those places. I think we lost a million
0: dollars on that tour. But at the end of the tour, we were playing to 25,000 seaters. That's really unusual, isn't it? Usually the American tours are really kind of breakneck. You're just on planes all the time if you're not gigging. Yeah, well, again, it was just uh, Tony DeFries, as discussed, making RCA
1: put their hands in the pockets and look after them and then being in a big hole to them. But that's see, that was a game that Tony DeFries was playing. Yeah. This is interesting. How deep do we want to go into this? But So Tony DeFries was doing this to RCA to make sure that RCA were in a hole to Bowie and the Spiders so that they would have to really promote the album to make the money back and then make Bowie famous. Yeah. Okay. Um, But they did that tour, and I was speaking to Di Davis on Cheap Thing, Uh, the Patreon thing that we've got going and uh, it's a three-part interview with him. And it, I was talking to him for an hour and 40 minutes. Mm. But he was, as he was talking about particularly the last Ziggy show, mm. and, and he said, and, you know, uh, they had these other tour lined up, but they just couldn't go back to America because uh, they owed everybody so much money. So I said, like, all right, Di, I've never even thought of this before, but is there a possibility that David Bowie decided to pack the Spiders in, not out of a creative decision, but led by the fact that he knew that every time that they would tour, they would lose money? And he just found out that the money that would actually uh, need to go to be paid to pay off these debts was coming from his half of the deal with Main Man and Tony DeFeese wasn't footing any of the expenses at all. So Bo is looking at a tour, I think it was of Japan and Australia, yeah, yeah. and then thinking, right, if I do those two tours and we continue like this, I'll probably lose half a million dollars in Japan, half a million dollars in Australia, that's me, another million in in the can, and then also, could we go back to America? I'm just going to I'm just going to pull the rug on this because I cannot do it. You know, he would have, he would have been even worse financially uh, if he had done those tours. And I just wondered, and I said to Di, do you think that he wasn't, as he's always kind of like professed, that Bowie thought, no, I've had enough of Ziggy, I'm going to kill him now. Mm. And Di said he was always going to kill Ziggy. Of course he was. Yeah. We know that he was a character. But he, 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 you wonder why um, Bowie allowed these tours to be set up you know, with a view to doing them. Because that's at the end of that gig, Woody and Trevor both thought that they were going to be going on to do in Australia and yeah, Japan. Yeah, of course, yeah. And then they find out the very last minute of the very last show and all that, that the band has split up. But would Bowie really have let somebody go to all of the, um, the lengths to, to organise his tours of Japan and Australia and then supposedly going back to America? Would he let them do that if he, was, if he really just wanted to creatively um, pack it all in? I, I personally do think that it was led, uh, a financially-led decision and it happened sooner than it would have done. It would have happened, but it happened sooner than it would have done and maybe the Spiders uh, would have got another
0: year out of it and maybe they would have come back to the UK and we could have seen them, Bob it's a really intriguing possibility isn't that, that as you it say is. it was driven financially rather than, than conceptually yeah i mean you know?
1: and, and Dye said well
0: yeah maybe maybe it was a bit of both so and um, we but, will we will never know will we but also it just brings up that thing that uh, was a recurring theme in bowie's life wasn't it that pre- self-preservation thing he could see what was what was happening he could see this treadmill he was on and needed to get off it somehow and it could have just ruined him for the rest of the decade if he just stayed on there you know so who knows, you know, there are sliding doors moments, aren't there, in everybody's lives, you know, parallel universes and all the rest of it. Well, if you think about it as well, and I have thought about this, as you can probably tell, yes, I can tell. <laughs> when, when, when I, I put the phone down
1: today, I was like, oh, God, let me try and work this out in my yeah. own mind. What could have happened? And then if you look at the, uh, what was Bowie's next step, well, he did he did the 1980 Floor Show, yeah. which w- he was hoping was going to help him in America and, mm. and, and, and pave the way to go back and maybe make him already a bit more successful than just a tour in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but also he did pinups. Yeah. Now pinups was easy to do because he didn't write the songs, as yeah. we you know. And he went in. He had uh, he had Mick and Trevor with him. Funnily enough, not Woody. He'd had enough. And um, mm. we'll get to that in a minute, I think. Um, but that was a holding operation and made loads of money. Yeah. And so that will have paid off a lot of his debts. And he probably thought, right, I can go back to America now and try and do it again properly with this new band. Yeah. and So it all makes sense. You know, he would have he, pin-ups will have helped him out enormously because there wouldn't have been much expenditure. It Take him long to do because I know that also the thought was, um, and Di was saying, What's he going to do, Bowie? It's going to take him nine months to write another album and mm. then go and record it. Well, he didn't because he just did a load of other people's tunes. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I, you look at pinups and think, Why did you do that? And it's a great record, I do love it, but you, you have to think that really the bottom line is that he did it just to pay off a load of his debts, really, and then just get himself on an even keel. Get rid of Tony DeVries, and then start trying to get his his world in order, which he didn't actually manage to do once he'd read all the
0: small print. Until that stance in nineteen eighty three. Yeah, that's right, went on for a long time. But yeah, in no in that sort of light, pinups makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. It, it, all all it, the
1: jigsaw pu- uh, pa- parts of the jigsaw puzzle do fit together. Yeah, in, 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 in that scenario
0: that I've kind of come up with,
1: and yeah, and yeah, it was just it wasn't a flight of fancy. It is kind of considered and thought about, but it might still be wrong. Uh, Okay, so back to Trevor then, bless him. Uh, And the question was, you weren't
0: sacked, right? Uh, What was the reason for leaving? He said, I wasn't sacked. Uh, Woody was fired because Woody decided he'd had enough of Bowie's attitude and stuff and his manager. Me and Ronson went on to do pin-ups, as we just discussed, after Woody was fired with Ainsley Dunbar on drums. And then Ronson went solo and I went with Ronson to do his solo albums. Then Bowie did Diamond Dogs and he didn't use us. He just phased us out more than anything else, uh, the whole thing. We were phased out of the scene, but many still think it was indeed the best band he'd ever had, the Spiders from Mars he's then asked having left with Ronson you and Woody did an album as the spiders from Mars though did you think it would be as big as with Bowie of course we did, laughs.
1: Nah, we got two guys in uh, from Newcastle, uh, Pete McDonald to sing and Dave Black to play guitar. He's a very good guitar player and Pete's a very good singer. He sounds very much like Paul Rogers. The album that we did, I suppose, was a good album, but he was not in the Bowie vein of that time, so many people bought it thinking it was going to be another Ziggy Stardust album, while we took to the music in a different way than he's asked. So the call from Uriah Heap came right after the Spiders broke up. Did you have any other offers?
0: Not really, he says. I moved back to Hull, to my hometown. I was going to put together another band, myself, with some people from Hull, which never really materialised. I had a few musicians lined up and stuff, but it never came about because the uh, Uriah Heap offer came in. He says, when I joined Heap, I suppose I'd not been playing in that style, but a different type of music. They
1: had Gary Thane before that and John Watton. Gary was another bass player that was not restricted in what he wanted to do. He just played stuff he wanted to play. Heap style of music that had changed by the time I joined from the earlier stuff. I mean, take Firefly and compare it to The Magician's Birthday.
0: That's a different style altogether, but I was left to play what I wanted. Yeah, then he's asked, didn't Ken Hensley tell you what to do? Well, says Trevor, he couldn't restrict me. He was too busy getting on playing his keyboards and doing his bit. Later on, especially with this band, I actually progressed my playing even further because we had better songs that opened up more room for bass playing, as well as uh, any of the old songs we did, like July Morning. So we used to do what I want and get solo stuff off. Now and again, uh, he's then asked, how did the Heap offer come along? Was it through the record company or some acquaintance? No, it came through
1: Woody Woodmansey. He rang up one day and said, there's a bank called Uriah Heap looking for a bass player because he was on Bronze Record Label at the time, same as Uriah Heap. I'll put you forward. Do you want it? So I said, yeah, OK. And I rang up, I think, Ken Hensley, who told me to learn July Morning and
0: Easy Living. Simple as that. Uh, he carries on, I went out, bought the record, learnt them, went to the audition, played those two songs straight off, and then we did the jam thing, uh, the blues thing for a while, that was the audition. I turned out to them and said, look, you better tell me now whether you want me to join you or what you want me to go. I don't want all this, we'll call you next week business. I'd rather you say no now if I'm not right, and I'll just go away and get on with what I'm doing in Hull, which is forming another band. And they made me sit down and said, no, 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 you don't, you're in. And so I got the job right there. It seems like he was at the end of his tether, really, doesn't it? Yeah, and you can understand it. He must have been sort of quite uh, embittered at that point, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, And he's then asked, what was the reason of forming the Cybernauts? Were you trying to relive the spiders from Mars thing? A a lot of these questions are unfair, aren't they? They're just kind of... preloaded really, you know? They are, but they get good answers, Mm. thankfully, so hopefully this is a listenable episode
1: (laughs) of the A to Z of David Bowie, Mark Riley, Bob Hughes hello. It was an accident, we did the Hammersmith Odeon gig in London in 1994 a big tribute gig for Mick Ronson with lots of different people playing and they wanted to do the Spiders from Mars thing so me and Woody got a guitar player Billy Rankin, Phil Lanson did keyboards and then Joe Elliott from Def Leppard called me and said, look, we've been asked to do the Ronson Memorial, what if we put a band together as the Spiders and we come on as guests yeah,
0: what if I sing and play and Phil Collin plays guitar as well? Then we'll have three guitar players. He continued. We did that concert and then they did another memorial concert for Mick a year later in Hull and there'd be Phil Collin, Joe Elliott, me and Woody and a keyboard player from Birmingham called Dick. <laughs> they didn't know too, <laughs> too long. I mean, it's a funny thing, just a little aside, but yeah. Mark Radcliffe and I, at the, at the time
1: of the Hull gig, we'd just been kicked off the Radio 1 breakfast show and we were delighted about oh, it. Yeah. You know, We got an afternoon show and so it, our lives were going to be immeasurably better and so was the audiences uh but um, that very weekend i've been asked to go and uh, be the mc uh, at Hull, it would have been the City Hall, I'm presuming, yeah. uh, the memorial for uh, Mick Ronson and just seeing m- and introducing all the bands and everybody. But we were on the front pages of the tabloids and everything. It was just stupid. Right. And and we were just at the end of our tether. Like I say, everybody was really. Yeah. And so me and Trace and Kate and Beth, who were toddlers at the time, we just ran off to Robin Hood Bay, ironically, not far from Hull. Well, I was going to say, just down the coast, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and, we, and we just went and hid, really, and had a really great weekend. Mm. We were so... Grateful to see the back of The Breakfast Show. Yeah. And uh, and, I, and I was like, I was hurting because yeah. the thought of being uh, involved in the Mick Robson Memorial was just a staggering yeah, and, and honoured and all that kind of stuff. But I was just brow beaten and running away. Like I say, he literally was on the front of the tabloids, you know, sacked after nine months and all that kind. Right,
0: yeah, sure. I mean, it's just timing then, wasn't it? This wasn't right. Th- exactly that. Yeah, so uh, he continued talking about the uh, Mick Memorial concert. Uh, Trevor says, We thought, well, what if instead of just going out and doing that one concert or two, we do a little tour of England? So we put a tour together with a mate of mine before that concert, as Heap weren't working at the time anyway. We did five concerts and then the Memorial one, we went to Dublin where Joe lives. He took the studio out out of his house and brought it to the concert hall and we recorded the show live
1: and then we went to the Irish studio and recorded more stuff we had a whole bunch of stuff that we'd recorded live and over the next year Joe put it together in his studio with an engineer and he mixed it all we decided to call the band on the album the Cybernauts not the Spiders from Mars because they weren't really the Spiders from Mars and people might get confused the next question some months ago your name cropped up in the Mojo magazine message board and whatever happened to dot 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 section
0: how could people lose track of you when you're so easy to find through any searching engine and he says I don't know somebody's got a whole thing on me somewhere on the web and if you type my name it comes up with all my history and everything that I've been doing so maybe they just forgot and then one day decided let's see what he's doing now but I went to see Ian Hunter play in Leeds last year I went along with Joe Elliott who's pretty famous I spent the whole night signing autographs because people kept coming up to me who didn't even know me and I must have signed for nearly the whole audience people were shocked that I was there they never expected to see me at a gig like that one guy even
1: went home and got his wife and kids out of bed and started playing Bowie albums as he was a Bowie fan telling them he just met me and he never thought he'd ever meet me in his life he was so excited and it's great people like that for they lose touch with you and they think they're never going to see you again like I've never seen Jack Bruce I've not bumped into him I've seen him anywhere or played a gig with him but I still have his albums and I still listen to him this is just so sweet isn't it and he said if you're not in the public eye people do think that you've disappeared off the face of the earth just to say I went to see Ian Hunter at the uh, Robin Hood 2 in Bill Oh yes, uh, I'm going back probably 15 years ago mm. now. Uh, but Joe Elliott was in the audience there as ah, well. He's yeah. a proper fan, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. The next question. So, what about writing an autobiography? Now, with the passage of time, not sure what the uh, year was of this interview. Should have found that out really. But uh, um, you know, uh, this is quite
0: a. Uh, this is this has got a little bit of a turn in it. Really. Yeah, of course it has. Yeah, so um, so he laughs at that. He says, "No, I don't think so." Me and Woody were going to write a book about Bowie and the spiders, but he backed. Out and I really wanted to do it, so of course Woody ended up doing it yeah. in his own right,
1: didn't he? Which is a great book. And I don't. I wonder. I wonder if he was just uh, bothered about the conflicting sides of it because it seems it seems Woody's book is very tempered and measured. Yeah, very. And there much are so. there are bits in there that are kind of like a, a little bit um, gnarly and mm. a little bit upset with Bowie. But it, it seems here that Trevor was a bit more kind of gung ho about yes.
0: about his uh, disgruntlement. Yeah, it could have been that. Very guessing. much so. Uh, He's then asked, well, you know, the reason for that, was he afraid of some lawsuit from Bowie? No, you can write what you want in a book so
1: long as it's true, and it would be true. It wouldn't be elaborated. He says, "Um, but if I wrote
0: a book, I'm sure Bowie would deny everything that would be written in it because he always denies everything. (laughs) (laughs) So he elaborates He said, a friend of mine wrote a book on the days with Bowie and he came to me for information and I gave him lots of information on things that happened. He finished working with Bowie in the end but presented the book to him and said look, I want you to read the book before it goes to print. Tell me what you think. And David came back to him and said, this is untrue, that's not true, that's not true, this is rubbish, that's not true. So the guy said... This quote here, I asked nine individual people for their comments and they all said the same thing. So who's telling the truth? You or them? They must be telling the truth but you're saying it's not true because you've decided to change it in your mind because you don't want to be seen like that. All right? Yeah,
1: you know, I mean, and David did have a reputation for that, didn't he? And 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 he would he would answer uh, questions, the same question, in different ways yes. at various <laughs> stages in his career, wouldn't he? He would contradict himself and all sorts and he was very secretive as well uh, in certain elements Yeah.
0: and so y- you can imagine that you, it, guilty as charged. Yeah, you can, certainly. And he did that great thing, didn't he? If you really didn't want to talk about a specific period, he just said, I've got no memory of it. You know, I was, Yeah, oh, well. I, think, I, think, I think it probably is a little bit true at that point. Well, yeah, <laughs> I think it's a bit of both, isn't it? Uh, he's then asked, when was the last time you saw Bowie? He said, I haven't seen him since
1: 1977. Uh, the question then is thrown at him or a statement. I was rather shocked to know he didn't take part in any
0: Ronson Memorial concert. Trevor says, we were all hoping he'd come, but he said uh, this is David Bowie for me and this is Ken Hensley style. He was too upset that Mick had died to turn up for his memorial concert but when Freddie Mercury died, Bowie was straight on that stage because it was in front of millions of people. He got there for Freddie's concert but he couldn't get there for Mick's uh, because it wasn't big enough audience for him. See, that's what I mean and I, do- I doubt that <clears throat> I doubt that Woody would have been quite yeah. so blunt about it, but it's
1: absolutely fair enough, that's what Trevor thought and and, they, uh, and his opinion. Uh, now Mick was on stage with him at Freddie Mercury's show and Mick was really ill when he did that show I think the thing was that Bowie couldn't face the musicians like me and Woody and other people that he'd done some really not nice things to got a point Uh, but couldn't he just come on and do one song just one song he said later on that he thought he was going to be a shambles and he didn't want to be part of a shambles but it was really good it was a great evening right okay Okay, so I think uh, yeah hopefully we've done Trevor Boulder justice there Um, but uh, he comes across as a really sweet man and I do remember uh, when Trevor passed away uh, I played um, John i Dancing, which is my favourite bass line. Of, yeah, of, it's great, of, isn't it? Of Trevor Boulders. It's just absolutely brilliant. And I remember on the night, um, Stephen Street. He's a brilliant fella, a massive Bowie fan, obviously producer of uh, uh, Blur and loads and loads and loads of Smiths, loads of great records. Um, and I've played John Monley Dancing in tribute to uh, Trevor Boulder. And uh, and it was great. Stephen Street just tweeted, he said, I knew Mark Riley would play this one. This is Trevor Boulder's best bass line, and it's my favourite too. So, uh, and, and, you know, God bless you, R.I.P. Trevor Boulder. The only time that I saw um, Trevor Boulder playing live, apart from uh, going to see Uriah Heep and not really lasting, yes. was on the Sort on 10th Avenue tour. Ah, of course, with Ronno, yeah. And I just remember, I was right near the front, luckily. But I do remember that the bass just, it was one of those bass frequencies that rattled your chest. Right. Not, I, I've not really um, uh, come across that many times. I've been to thousands and mm. thousands of gigs. And quite often it's too loud, or the guitar might be a bit toppy and painful. But it was one of those. And it has happened before, but not, as I say, not often. Your whole rib cage is just rattling with every note that is sown out. It was so thunderous. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, an amazing bass player Uh, so yeah Trevor Boulder R.I.P.
0: So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie but once again before you go if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club You can, and here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie Members Club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why? so now you're thinking, $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer, actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as... Views with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular film Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased
1: archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock and Jason Reed Visiting
0: various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Cheap Things, or one word, and join up.
1: Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.